Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. So welcome to Hot and Bothered, a new podcast on climate politics for the 99%, hosted by Descent Magazine. We'll be paying attention to greenhouse gases and terrible weather and oil prices, but in connection with other things that we care about, like unions and child care and police violence. So basically, a progressive climate podcast that actually takes politics as seriously as it takes the weather. We'll be looking at the places climate change is already hitting, the people fighting back against the one percenters who are driving it, and other stories and ideas that just aren't getting enough attention elsewhere. We'll have on a mix of organizers and deep thinkers and wonks to help us explore what's coming, what's already happening, and what that means for our shared fate as a species. Daniel, want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Daniel Aldana Cohen. I'm a writer and PhD candidate at NYU. But just for a few more weeks, starting in July, I'll be an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. And my main research is on the politics of climate change in global cities. So, Kate, what about you? I'm a writer covering climate politics and social movements. And I first got hot and bothered about climate change, helping found my campus's fossil fuel divestment campaign just outside of Philadelphia. Now I write about those kinds of movements for places like Waging Nonviolence in These Times, Jacobin, The Guardian, Dissent, and more. Great. So uh, today we'll be talking about the movement to resist fossil fuel extraction. We'll catch up on some relevant news. Then we're going to have two great interviews. First, I'm going to have a chat with longtime climate activist and author Bill McKibben. And then I'll be talking with Tara Huska, who is a tribal rights lawyer, environmental justice organizer, and Bernie Sanders' Native American advisor. And as you're listening or afterwards, uh, you should tweet at us at hashtag hotbotheredclimate. So let's talk news. Daniel, what's on your radar? Uh, well, maybe I'll start with some bad news for my home country, Canada. There's been an epic fire in Fort McMurray. Uh, really tragic. I've been up there myself uh, several years ago. Um, so this kind of forest fire, uh, scientists are telling us, is becoming more and more common, more and more frequent in a warming world. It's not just an issue in Canada, but all over the place. Take the United States, according to the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. In the U.S., quote, the number of large wildfires has nearly doubled since the 1980s, and the average length of wildfire season has grown by more than two months, end quote. So Fort McMurray is really kind of giving us a picture of what's to come. And one of the things that we're seeing now, uh, as the 94,000 evacuees from the city of Fort McMurray try to get back, is that where there's fire, there's smoke. And it's smoke that's now blocking the residents from getting back into the city. The smoke uh, over the city is now so toxic that it's just ravaging provincial kind of standards Alberta has a code of 1 to 10 to measure air quality. 10 is the highest risk. And the kind of readout of smoke on Monday, this past Monday, was a 38. Yikes. Well, I am happy to report slightly better news from closer to home. 175 world leaders met in New York on Earth Day a few weeks back to sign on to the Paris Agreement. As we discussed in our pilot episode, the agreement was reached at the climate talks in Paris uh, in December at COP21. 
And there are things to celebrate about it, but a best-case scenario puts us on track for three degrees Celsius of warming. So that's if every one of the nations who signed on on Earth Day meets their commitments to full capacity. And just to give a sense for what three degrees Celsius of warming means, uh, climate scientist Kevin Anderson has called it incompatible with organized global community. It would also likely leave the studio that we're talking to you from now underwater. But as we said last time, even with all of its caveats, the Paris Agreement is an important step. In terms of the United States' own prospects for meeting our commitments, 26 states are now suing the Obama administration over the Clean Power Plan, which was the hallmark commitment the U.S. brought with it to COP21. It's now indefinitely stalled in the courts, having been granted a stay by the Supreme Court just days before Justice Antonin Scalia's death in February. He died in time to save collective bargaining, but unfortunately not the clean power plan from months and months of bureaucratic malaise. Speaking of timing, in Brazil, there has been kind of a soft coup, and uh, the new government has canned the country's environment minister, a very well-respected minister who played a key role in Paris. The new government has also appointed a soy baron, who's responsible for quite a bit of Amazon deforestation as agriculture minister. So Yan Rocha, writing from Sao Paulo for the Climate News Network, is writing that environmentalists are also now worried that the Senate in Brazil is on the verge of shredding a number of important environmental laws, and those laws in Brazil were already pretty weak. This past weekend, activists worldwide wrapped up 12 days of action against fossil fuel extraction that they called Break Free 2016, as in breaking free from fossil fuels. Tens of thousands of protesters in 13 countries did everything from disrupt a coal plant in Brazil to a coal port in Australia to a coal ash disposal site in Turkey and one of Europe's largest carbon-emitting coal plants in Germany. And it wasn't just coal that was getting interrupted. There was even some action in Albany, New York, closer to Hot and Bothered's home. So-called bomb trains were interrupted by a number of activists. Those trains carry highly combustible fracked oil from North Dakota's Bakken oil fields through some very populous areas of that city. And our producer, Colin Kinneborough, was there with his recorder. Here's Judy Sheridan Gonzalez, president of the New York State Nurses Association, or NISNA, talking about why the climate crisis is a public health crisis, too. You may have seen Lillian Wald in history books. She's that little old visiting nurse that was crawling over tenement rooftops to take care of the poor immigrants of New York City a century ago. And what did she find? What caused disease? Rats, vermin, air pollution, water pollution, poverty, poor housing. These are environmental issues. That was a healthcare emergency a hundred years ago. And what is the healthcare emergency today? These oil trains. Bomb trains are no different than the rats responsible for typhus and the bad water responsible and poor sanitation responsible for dysentery a century ago. The eradication of diseases in this country was linked at the umbilical cord to inequality, to the environmental hazards that predominate our most vulnerable communities. Changed. Break Free follows in a long line of escalated actions around climate this spring, including the 62 students arrested demanding that their universities divest from fossil fuels. All 
All right. Well, speaking of climate activists, let's move on to our discussion with Bill McKibben. He hardly needs an introduction. Uh, He is an author and an environmentalist, the co-founder of 350.org. He's a professor at Middlebury College. He's the author of the first book on climate change for general audience, The End of Nature, from way back in 1989. He's written a bunch of books since, most recently, Oil and Honey, which gives a really interesting account of the successful battle against the Keystone XL pipeline. So here's Bill. So, Bill, it's so great to have you uh, here on the show. Um, You did a recent piece, a very big story on fracking and methane uh, in The Nation magazine. They used to tell us that, you know, fracking was not such a big problem. We maybe had to put up with some local environmental damages in light of the bigger picture on climate change, the global warming benefits of natural gas. And what you've sort of argued in that story is that that's actually not exactly right. Um, so could you maybe remind us what, you know, what is the science behind uh, the science that's coming out now on fracking and natural gas? Um, sure. How big a problem is it? Sure. Look, the, the reason that some people said, oh, natural gas could be a bridge fuel to take us from coal to solar is that when you burn it, it releases less carbon dioxide per unit of energy, per BTU. It's about half as bad in terms of carbon. So if you had a gas-fired power plant, all things being equal, it would produce about half as much carbon as a coal-fired power plant. Not great, but better. The problem is that when natural gas escapes unburned into the atmosphere, it's CH4, not CO2, CH4 is far more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide ever was. So potent that if the leak rate is more than a couple of percent, putting up the natural gas power plant is no better, maybe worse than putting up the coal-fired one. Scientists had started suggesting this a few years ago. The energy industry and the EPA poo-pooed it, but one study after another kept indicating that this might be the case. And in February, a really massive study came out of Harvard demonstrating that U.S. methane emissions had spiked 30% during the first 10 years of this century, precisely the time when we were ramping up fracking so quickly. If you run the numbers with uh, including all this, it looks as if America has maybe reduced its total greenhouse gas emissions, maybe just a smidge, maybe not at all. They may well have gone up over the last 10 years, which gives us a a very different picture than the one we've been telling ourselves and the one we've been telling the world. What it means is we can't keep on with this fracking uh, revolution, for heaven's sakes, we can't spread it around the world. The good news is we no longer really need that bridge anyway, because in the last 10 years, the price of a solar panel has fallen about 80%. We could just make the leap to renewables now if it weren't for the immense political power of the fossil fuel industry, which is increasingly the fracking industry. I mean, Exxon's now the biggest fracker on earth. This is really, I think, sobering news. Um, I mean, I remember, and I'm sure you do as well, for years, these like, as you said, these sort of stories were bubbling up and everyone kept saying, wait for more data, wait for more data. Although waiting is kind of the last thing that we should be doing. Yeah. And happily, not everybody waited. Yeah. <laughs> the good people of New York 
came together in one of the great movements we've seen in the modern age and forced Governor Cuomo to ban fracking in the state of New York. That same thing has happened now in Wales and Scotland and Tasmania and France and plenty of other places, too. So it's not as if there's not some fighting back going on. You know, I know that we should, of course, as you know, human beings assume that everybody out there has the most pristine uh, intentions. But I've got to ask you kind of how surprised you were ultimately by the magnitude of the emissions that you ended up seeing. And, and I guess the question is, you know, do you, is this a wrinkle in the narrative where we really now understand what is causing global warming? Or are we still struggling in the scientific community to get a handle on where the most important emissions are coming from no, industrial activity? Like, do we actually no, get, you know, is our data good enough yeah, right no, now? Our data I don't mean in terms enough. of the science, but just in terms of politically where we should focus. Our data is good enough. Uh, you know, we've known from the beginning that the basic problem is burning fossil fuel, any fossil fuel. Even if gas didn't have this, you know, even if you could get gas with no methane leaking out of it, the fact that it still emits a lot of carbon would be reason enough to quickly get off it, not to build new infrastructure that would lock us into it for 40 years. This is clear because it's clear. I, I guess the other thing that's become clear over the last few years is that there is nothing distant about the climate problem. It's not some threshold that we will cross in you know 20 years or 40 years or 60 years. We've already crossed very significant thresholds. The news this year, we've just had each of the last 12 months has been the warmest month on record. February and March crushed every record that we have on the planet. And we're seeing the effects in real time. I mean, we just watched the decimation, maybe half of the uh, coral reefs in the Australian basin um, um, killed in a matter of weeks by hot water. Um, as we talk today, uh, forest fires so astonishing is burning out of control in northern Alberta that they've had to evacuate 90,000 people from uh, the major city in that part of the world, Fort McMurray. Um, um, we're, we're, we're deep in it now, and so there's no more room for bridges. It's time for action. I think you're, you're absolutely right on the need for immediate action. So let's talk about Break Free, which is this mm -hmm. campaign 350 is helping to spearhead here. Um, and I'm wondering... You know, I want to ask you a little bit about the coalitions that, that you guys are now helping to put together to take this immediate action on keeping fossil fuels in the ground. And you know, I asked this in the context of this huge victory on blocking the Keystone XL pipeline, where I think a lot of us watching were very impressed by how big and diverse the coalition was that you assembled in terms of what was, you know, what was referred to as cowboys and Indians or ranchers and indigenous folks, a lot of labor groups, community groups, Downtown, downtown hipsters, environmental justice groups, kind of a whole span of American uh, society, North American society even coming together on this. So what are the lessons that you have learned from the Keystone XL as an environmental movement in terms of shutting down fossil fuel operations with a big, broad coalition? Well, I think that you're, you've laid them all out. A uh, big, broad coalition is really important. In this case, led by frontline communities, led by indigenous groups. The good news about Keystone is not that we blocked the Keystone pipeline. That was good, 800,000 barrels of oil a day. The good news was that it inspired people everywhere else to think that they could actually beat big oil. It was one of the first times that big oil had ever taken a loss like that. And so it was very powerful to see 
what's happened since the the head of the American Natural Gas Association last year called it the keystoneization of every project in America and really around the world. Every place except, you know, places where you can't, like Russia, people are fighting each new project and increasingly they're winning. And they're all working off the same playbook, you know, um, um, get everyone involved. All these projects have deep local problems associated with them, hence the farmers and ranchers and people who live in the tar sands and so on. They also have deep global problems associated with them, hence all the climate scientists and faith communities and, uh, you know, just all the people who know that we need to staunch the flow of carbon into the atmosphere to have any hope of a future. Um, fantastic. And so in terms of moving forward then, um, you know, are there things that you are, that you're, your movement is doing differently? Um, you know, lessons learned in terms of trying to do new things, or is it about just getting bigger? Uh, mostly it's everybody's, we just need everybody playing. This break free thing is a perfect example. It's by far the biggest example of global civil disobedience, uh, certainly on climate issues, maybe on any issues, uh, all at once. So in 17 nations, over the next couple of weeks, there are actions going on all over the place. There were 10,000 people in the Philippines yesterday, uh, and a huge bunch in a Welsh coal mine the day before that, and, you know, onto the oil fields of Nigeria and uh, the port of Newcastle in Australia, which is the biggest coal port in the world. And in the United States, you know, everywhere from the oil trains coming into Albany to the fracking auctions in Colorado to the streets of LA, which are pocked in low income areas with actual acting active oil wells right in the middle of the city to people outside Chicago, uh, fighting, uh, uh, tar sands refineries. I mean, just on and on and on. It's pretty dramatic and interesting to watch. And I mean, the, the point of it, of course, is that it's happening on a very broad scale. Um, sometimes people wonder, you know, if there's a sort of great leader or anything for the climate movement, and there really isn't. We don't have any Dr. King. We're working everywhere all at once, and so it's more like a, a resistance, I guess, than a, a traditional uh, set of organizations or great leaders or something like that. But we're all well-connected enough, thanks to the Internet, that we can coordinate when the time calls for it. Uh, people have said it's the, the 350 and the things that grew out of it were kind of the first open source uh, movement. And I, I think that's proving to be a very robust, hardy model for organizing. So I want to pick up on this word uh, resistance you used. You know, as you mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation, um, what's great about the situation is we don't just have to get off coal and gas and so on, but we have a replacement ready, which is the renewable energy sector really technologically at this point sophisticated and ready to go. In terms of getting off fossil fuels, there are obviously groups, still unions, uh, other groups of workers who are kind of nervous about making this transition. And I'm curious, you know, to what extent is 350 really focused on what are the mechanics of this transition? How do we make it happen? To what extent is 350 saying, look, our job is big enough. Uh, keeping fossil fuels in the ground is a huge fight. And we need other groups now to really step in and to start working on that just transition in more detail. Well, we're, we think things like just transition are incredibly important and we'll keep working on them. But it really, you know, the, the sense of 
what comes next is not our particular strong point. Um, um, somebody has to try and take on the fossil fuel industry. And, uh, you know, that's been us. And it's, it's, it's less systematic than it is like throwing a rock in a pond and um, um, watching the ripples and trying to surf them, you know. And, and there's, you know, the, the hope is we'll keep making bigger waves. And, uh, and that requires more and more people. The good news is there's tons of people engaged happily in the work of figuring out what the future looks like once we break the hold of coal and oil and gas on our lives. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of kind of building the next uh, system, um, Bill, you've been out on the campaign uh, trail. You've been you know, writing op-eds in the Daily News uh, and elsewhere talking about you know, Bernie's very strong climate agenda. Um, now I don't want to count Bernie out, but the delegate math is looking a bit tough. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you guys are thinking about in terms of putting pressure on the political system uh, in the next sort of years ahead as we transition from an Obama presidency to, you know, obviously we're all hoping not a Trump presidency, uh, hopefully something a little bit better, but not necessarily a presidency that is as focused on climate change as the Bernie campaign. Oh, hell, we'll never have a presidency that does all that we needed it to do. I mean, the day that I, I helped introduce Bernie at his announcement speech in Burlington, I said, you know, that we'll probably be down there chained ourselves to the door of the White House once a year and a two, you know. Um, and he would have would like nothing better, I'm sure, because he's a movement guy. I, I think the answer to your question is movements. I think that movements change zeitgeists. And when the zeitgeist changes, then policy and personnel and everything else follow. Um, that that's the real fight is to change the zeitgeist. And um, uh, that's, you know, why it's been so much fun to watch Bernie uh, demonstrate that there are a lot of people ready for something new, especially young people. I think it's lost on no one that had this election been conducted among people who have to live on this planet 30 years from now, Bernie would have won in a landslide. Well, I think that's a great point to end this on. So, uh, Bill, thank you so much for the time and for coming on the show. A great pleasure. Thank you for doing this good thing. Uh, so a quick update. Uh, since I spoke with Bill, um, we started off by talking about this issue of methane leaking. And the Obama administration's uh, Environmental Protection Agency has unveiled a new rule on methane leaks. It's targeting new or modified oil and gas wells, should prevent 11 million uh, metric tons of CO2 equivalent uh, in emissions by 2025. So this new rule doesn't apply to the vast number of existing rigs, but it looks like they will eventually be targeted. It's hard to know what to make of this rule so quickly after it was issued. Uh, gas companies are angry, so that's obviously good. Um, environmental groups are cautiously optimistic. But clearly, this is some kind of step forward, and it reflects the pressure that activists and scholars and people like Bill have been bringing on the Obama administration on this issue. Next up this episode, we are talking with Tara Huska. 
Tara is a tribal rights attorney and director at Honor the Earth. She's been working to stop fossil fuel projects around the country, including the Keystone XL pipeline. She's also supported legislation to keep fossil fuels in the ground. She recently joined up with Bernie Sanders' campaign for president as his Native American advisor, helping to draft his Native American platform and reaching out to indigenous communities along the campaign trail. In addition to her organizing, Tara is a contributing writer at the Guardian Indian Country Media Network and the Huffington Post. Here's Tara. To start off, I was wondering if you could just uh, speak a little bit about your own work. So how did you first become involved with tribal rights law? Uh, how did that lead you to your work against fossil fuel extraction with Honor the Earth? And how did you arrive at where you are now in your work with the Sanders campaign? Sure. So um, I'm originally from northern Minnesota, the Canadian border, International Falls, Minnesota. Um, I'm a member of Kuching First Nation. So I would say, you know, tribal rights has been something that I've been interested in for pretty much my entire life. Um, went to law school and really kind of focused in on both um, intellectual property, but with a really heavy, heavy emphasis on eventually tribal rights. Um, and came out to D.C. after finishing that um, and worked in private practice for a couple of years representing tribes across the country. And through that work kind of, you know, really saw the, the um, level of environmental injustice happening throughout Indian country and, you know, how impacted these communities are by climate change, by all these front lines issues, extraction, um, you know, everything you can imagine really that most people don't ever really think about because it's in rural areas that are kind of not really on their radar. Um, and so I became more and more involved in kind of direct actions and ended up switching, switching what I was doing um, over to working with Honor the Earth, which is an environmental justice nonprofit that, um, you know, focuses its work entirely on indigenous peoples and frontlines communities um, facing various issues brought on by fossil fuel extraction and climate change. Um, and then through that work, uh, actually last year, I was asked to introduce the Keeping of the Ground Act alongside Bernie Sanders and uh, Jeff Merkley and Bill McKibben and Aaron Mayer on the Hill. And from that, I kind of stayed in contact with uh, Senator Sanders' office and was just really, really impressed by the level of outreach and the um, quality of staffing. And we're at that same time, their president, his presidential campaign was kind of ramping up and there was a lot more Native American issues coming up. And so they were asking me more and more questions. And I ended up just kind of, you know, joining up with the campaign because I really saw a person that truly believed in everything that he has been fighting for his entire life. Great. And, and your work exists on a, on a number of different intersections and, and you work on a, a kind of range of uh, of issues. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how the campaign sees this type of work as connected, um, work around indigenous rights, uh, work around um, climate justice and keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Um, and have you seen uh, movements on these fronts push the Sanders campaign into adopting even more progressive policies through, through its length? I wouldn't say that, I mean, I think that as far as my own interpretation of the interrelatedness of, you know, issues of social justice, climate justice, environmental justice, um, I mean, I think that, you know, personally, I obviously think those are very related. Um, they all kind of tie into one another. And I think throughout this campaign, we've seen Black Lives Matter, we've seen, you know, climate justice, we've seen all these things kind of really come to a head, you know, with um, like anti-fracking, for instance. 
Um, and there's this understanding, especially I think with the situation in Flint, Michigan, that these issues are connected, that, you know, we see people of color in low, low income communities that are very much impacted by, you know, environmental injustice, you know, and kind of forgotten in this overall scheme and put aside. And I think that that's something that someone like Bernie Sanders has shown throughout his entire political career that, you know, and also personal career, just, you know, getting, getting arrested and stuff as a protester. Um, I, I think that, you know, he's shown that these issues are very, very significant and very um, important to him. So I've seen, you know, someone like myself being an advisor to the campaign. I mean, I work directly with a lot of these different movements. I work with, um, for instance, police brutality against Native Americans is something that is largely absent from the conversation. Um, Native Americans are more likely to be killed by the police than any other race of people. And that's not discussed at all, hardly in, you know, in, in the uh, overall societal conversation. And it's just something that I've seen Bernie Sanders really kind of pick up and realize um, and, you know, do so much like historic levels of outreach during a presidential campaign to Native American tribes across the country. Um, you know, I, he originally met with Oak Flat back when I was actually introducing the bill on the Keeping the Ground Act with him. He had just met with Oak Flat that day and then, you know, the next day introduced the Save Oak Flat Act, which prevents, which will repeal the legislation giving a sacred site to a foreign mining operation for extraction and, dis and destruction. Um, I think that it's something where I've seen a person really kind of just grasp the level of um, injustice happening in a, in a community and really just kind of, you know, address it in, in every way possible and include Native Americans at a, at a rate that I've never seen from any other presidential candidate. I mean, you, you just don't see that, that level of outreach and, and it really has happened throughout this campaign. You know, we've seen, like I said, we've seen um, protesters and, you know, protectors and all these kind of people directly questioning Bernie Sanders and going to his events. And he's been very, you know, respectful and has not kicked them out like some people I've noticed in the election. Um, instead, he's taken the time to really listen to them and, you know, give them a voice. And I think that's kind of what I saw, at least from the Native American perspective, is, you know, someone that genuinely wants to hear what's going on in, in throughout Indian country. They want to know what are the issues? Why is this? Why is this a situation? Um, you know, what are what are the treaty responsibilities that are not being upheld? You know, what are the, the issues that are really impacting your communities and has done everything you can to really kind of come up with a comprehensive plan to address it? Um, it was, for myself, it was a huge honor to work on his platform and to try and address all of these, you know, issues at a really high level um, and work with, the, work with, you know, what would be his administration to say, you know, these are, these are the things that Indian country needs, you know, and a lot of it is really based on self-determination and, you know, empowerment. So the ability to economically succeed, the ability to prosecute criminals on our reservations. I mean, those things are absolutely, you know, essential to a successful society and things that a lot of Indian country does not have. Um, people don't really understand that, you know, we, we can't lease our, we can't, we can't auction off our lands. These are trust lands. We can't, um, you know, just decide tomorrow to start doing something we have to, we have to, for most things you have to go through the federal government. Um, and that takes a long time and it's, it's a very, um, tedious process to actually do economic development on the reservation, which is often very remote places. Um, and at the same time, you know, you compound that with the extreme levels of violence and extreme levels of, 
you know, um, environmental injustice happening. So, you know, hydraulic fracturing happening right off the reservation boundaries, nuclear waste being stored on, on, on the reservation. I mean, these are, these are issues that most people don't really, are not really aware of and think that, you know, extreme poverty is the only, you know, extreme poverty comes from just a general lack of, you know, ability to work. And I, that's absolutely not the case. It's, it's not about laziness. It is about being compounded with, you know, a, a million different issues and at the same time having your hands tied and unable to address a lot of them the same way that every other society is, or every other group is allowed to. And after his loss in New York, uh, it seemed like the media moved pretty quickly to try and really forget about Bernie Sanders' campaign. Yet, as many people on the campaign have stated, there are still a number of delegates that are up for grabs in California. And his staffers have said on a number of occasions that they intend to go all the way to the convention in Philadelphia in July. So from your view of the Sanders campaign and based on the work that that you do um, outside of it and, and alongside it, what do you see as the stakes of this election being in terms of uh, that work? And why is it important that he stay in the race? I think that we've seen the media kind of really not be favorable to Bernie Sanders throughout this election. Um, as we've seen, you know, record-breaking uh, rallies and all those things across America, we've really seen not very much coverage on mainstream news sources, which has been pretty disappointing. Um, I think it's also, you know, it, it's, it says a lot to me that this is an election where we see uh, superdelegates playing a huge, huge role. And, you know, certain states where the, the people have actually voted for Bernie Sanders, but yet he comes out with the same number or less delegates from a state. Um, that is, it's been, a, it's been kind of an eye-opening process, I think, for a lot of voters, um, particularly from a party, I think, that prides itself on being very, very inclusive of making sure that every voice counts and, you know, not engaging in the type of voter suppression we see from the conservative party. Um, however, I think, you know, that at the same time, this, this election has been, um, I think it's been really indicative of kind of where we are as, you know, for, for people that are, are looking for progress and looking for change. Um, the, the climate, climate justice and climate change have been a part of every, almost every single debate. I mean, that's something that the Democrats have to talk about, right? Like at every single, um, meeting that they've had of minds. And it's been interesting to see, you know, uh, secretary Clinton get hit really hard for her stance on fracking for her to talk about, you know, natural gas being a bridge fuel and, and environmentalists calling her on that and saying, you know, that's not, that is not in line with what in real environmental progress is. Um, you know, and I think that it's been great to watch, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders that has such strong environmental stances really kind of push the envelope and force the conversation of, you know, this is, a, this is, we are in a, we are in a critical time. We are in a critical time of change. You know, we had the COP21, you know, uh, situation where people agreed that, you know, the, they set their marker of a couple degrees Celsius, but at the same time, you know, I think that that was largely a, a discussion of what we would like to agree to, and these are our, our ideals, but there are really no binding, you know, elements that are really saying, if you don't do this, then you know what I mean? Like that's, and that's really what we need. We're in a point, we're in a point in our country right now and our point in our world where climate change is happening. I mean, I was just actually at an indigenous retreat over the weekend and speaking with people from Louisiana who are going to be, or who are the, or the world's first, you know, are the America's first climate refugees that are actually going to have their communities move back because they're going underwater. I mean, that is that is a situation that is really happening out there. And 
one that cannot be, you know, overlooked anymore. And I think that Bernie Sanders staying in this race and really pushing that conversation has really uh, made a huge impact throughout, you know, just the discussion of environmentalism, period. Um, especially coming off the, the tail end of Keystone XL, which I think really woke up a lot of the American public to what was happening, um, to the, this idea that, you know, the people on the front lines and the people screaming through bullhorns are not necessarily these fringe activists. They're really people that are concerned about the environment and people that are concerned about our future, um, that it's not crazy to talk about climate change, that it's actually a reality and it's a scientific reality and one that our children and our grandchildren are going to be faced with. Um, that we're currently being faced with as we have, you know, refugees and droughts and, you know, water issues and water shortage issues. I mean, these are, these are real problems, right? And I think that I've been, I've been really happy to see Bernie Sanders refuse to bow to the media, refuse to bow to uh, the pressure of superdelegates and continue to fight in this race and, you know, continue to have thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, show up at his rallies and really um, get out there and feel empowered to vote. You laid out really the stakes of what's coming up in 2016, 2017, and beyond in terms of both meeting the sort of bare minimum criteria laid out by the Paris Agreement and going much, much farther beyond it. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how that work looks different from a movement perspective, whether it's Bernie Sanders in office or potentially Hillary Clinton or even someone like Donald Trump. Those are things, you know, I mean, thinking about the political scheme and how that's going to look, um, I think that if, you know, if Donald Trump were to get in office, I think from an environmental perspective and as a movement person, I would be very upset. You know, I think that that would set us back a lot. Um, it would set us back a lot in the conversation of climate change and actual substantive moves to address it. Um, I think that we're already in a state where we have a Congress that is still fighting over these issues, which is extremely frustrating. Um, to know that our elected representatives, some of them are still saying that climate change is not real. Um, they're still trying to make this into a political issue when it's, it's not. It's not a political issue. It's something that's the reality. And, you know, something that I think I'm hoping that our movements and particularly, you know, all the, all the, all the really like on the ground movements of people are a lot of young people. And at the end of the day, all these politicians, no matter which side of the fence they're on, they have to get the vote, right? I mean, they absolutely have to get our votes. And no matter how much money they spend, they really do have to ultimately get our votes. And I hope that they're seeing that young voters care about these issues. Young voters care about climate change. They care about, you know, environmental justice. They care about all this. And it's their future, right? I mean, this is literally like, as millennial, this is our future. This is my children's future. This is something that is absolutely like one of the most it's it's the great as i've heard said it's the greatest threat facing our globe right it's the greatest threat facing our planet and something that we have to address and i think that as we see the political people kind of realize that you know young people are going to be their voters right i mean that's going to be their voting electorate right now they're depending very heavily on the traditional kind of baby boomer votes, but at the same time, the millennial class is coming up where like a significant portion of the, of the voting population at this point, and we care about these things. And so I think that no matter who gets into office, if it's Hillary Clinton, I think that she'll continue to get pushed, um, in particular by a lot of the Sanders folks that are really, um, you know, very upset with her environmental record as a Democrat. Um, but if it is, you know, no matter who it is, I think that, you know, climate has become an incredibly important part of the conversation and will continue to be there. 
speaking of climate news, something that's been popping up uh, certainly in my Facebook feed and, and in the news a lot recently has been um, these break-free actions, uh, which, which you mentioned that you've um, been involved in, in in some way. And so I'm wondering if you could talk first about, uh, about your role in that and also about uh, what are the fossil fuel projects that are on um, your radar right now, whether they're being targeted by break-free or, or not? Yeah, sure. So um, this coming weekend, we'll be participating in Break Free Midwest um, down at the uh, Whiting, Illinois refinery. So I think that that's going to be, you know, a very powerful, very powerful moment in the Midwest. And um, we'll bring together a lot of folks that are coming from all over from, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, um, all those surrounding states, really, um, to talk about fossil fuel extraction, and how we want this to stop. You know, we really do want to keep it in the ground. Um, although I think that, you know, something like, a, like Senator Merkley and Sanders Act is something that this Congress might not be willing to do. It's something that I think that we can continue to push and ask for um, and ask our elected officials to actually do what we want them to do, which is, you know, protect our planet. Um, personally, I was actually just out in Ohio just a couple weeks ago um, protesting at Marathon Oil. Marathon Oil Headquarters just had their annual shareholders meeting, and they are a one-third owner in a proposed uh, pipeline called the Sandpiper Line. Um, it goes from the Bakken through Minnesota, through the Mississippi headwaters, and pops out at Lake Superior, sending fracked oil through all of those places. And if you know anything about Minnesota, it's the land of, you know, 10,000 lakes. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredibly huge watershed and, you know, headwaters in the Mississippi, but we're going to put a pipeline of fracked oil through it. Um, it's madness. And so we were, we just protested at Marathon basically saying, you know, don't support this project, pull out. Um, and they're, they're not doing well. A lot of the fossil fuel industry is not doing well at this moment. You know, they're, they're really struggling with renewables, you know, kind of really picking up steam. And at the same time, the price of oil bottoming out. And, you know, now we've seen this giant fire up in Fort McMurray shutting down, you know, part of the tar sands um, extraction sites. I mean, these are things that are happening all over that are really, really uh, putting the fossil fuel industry kind of on defense, I feel. And, you know, it kind of making them vulnerable in a way. I mean, we're not trying to say like, you know, take we want to take away jobs. We're saying, no, we want to give you, we want to promote jobs that are in green energy, you know, and move into the next um, era of energy production. This is in dated, entrenched industry that we don't need. Um, another project we're working on is the uh, Alberta Clipper Line, which is the backdoor, key, backdoor Keystone XL. I mean, most people don't really know about it. And it's really um, something that we need to be discussing at a much higher level. Keystone XL was, you know, rejected ultimately, and people view that as a huge victory, and it really was. Um, but at the same time, now there's the Alberta Clipper Line, which is 880,000 barrels of tar sands fuel per day coming through um, the, the headwaters of the Mississippi River, coming out at Lake Superior, going across the international border. And they've been, they've been able to do that by basically saying that there was an existing um, line crossing between the United States and Canada, and all they're doing, even though they're you know, rapidly, rapidly increasing the, the capacity, is maintenance. They're calling this maintenance and saying, this is not a new project, so therefore we don't need to do an environmental uh, review. We don't need to apply for any permitting. We don't need to do any of that. That's what Keystone XL pushed uh, TransCanada and, you know, like Enbridge and all those companies to start looking at is, okay, well, I don't want to go through the transnational border crossing process, so let's find a way around that. Let's start looking at our existing lines and see if we can, you know, rapidly and dramatically increase the capacity and just call it maintenance. 
and therefore avoid any environmental review whatsoever and, you know, get our project in, which I think is incredibly appalling. And I, we're, I mean, personally, we've been pushing really hard on the State Department to say that this is not maintenance. <laughs> this is a new project. Um, it needs a full environmental review. It needs a, a permitting process. Like the whole thing needs to happen just like it would with any other new pipeline project. And at the same time, also working at the state level, you know, because there's also a state permitting process, just like there was with Keystone XL and hoping that we can get the states to say, no, you need to go through this whole process in order to run your tar sands fuel or your fracked oil from the Bakken fuel through our through our rivers and our lakes. Yeah, it's been really exciting just the last several years to watch this kind of explosion of resistance um, at, at really places all around all around the continent. And like you said, Keystone was this sort of huge victory, um, while also acknowledging, of course, that there are so many other um, projects on the horizon. And I'm wondering, for folks who are getting involved with these break-free actions um, and who might just be coming uh, to this kind of work for the first time, uh, what kind of lessons do you see uh, coming out of out of the Keystone fight that that might be able to be translated um, to coming uh, coming campaigns around these these really sort of gratuitous infrastructure projects that are propping, cropping up? Yeah, no, we have we have pipelines and everything popping up everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All across the country, they are they are everywhere, um, and they've you know I think that they've become very clever with giving them numbers, right, instead of names. Mm-hmm hard to keep track of. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think that Keystone XL was, you know, I think it was a moment where we saw that coalitions of communities are incredibly important. So we saw indigenous peoples on the front lines and we saw landowners joining up forces together, right? Um, we saw farmers and, you know, ranchers really joining this battle of realizing, hey, eminent domain is going to take your house from you. It's going to take your property from you and put a giant pipeline through instead. Um, I think that that was a really, really powerful moment of showing that you can be on completely different walks of life. Um, I mean, they called it the Cowboy and Indian Alliance, you know, I mean, completely different uh, societal outlooks and perspectives. But when something like this comes comes down the line, you know, you it doesn't matter. It, what really matters is clean drinking water, which is something that we all need. Um, it's a unifying force that we all need. I mean, water is, it really is life, right? So these issues are ones that I think can appeal to anybody, any, any movement, any group, any, um, you know, community out there can, can join in a fight like that. And I think he said, I was a really great rallying point for that. Um, I think it was also, you know, I, for people coming into this, I saw a lot of kind of, it was almost a mixture of grassroots organizing partnered with like legal strategy and litigation, um, at a really, really high level. Um, it was pretty incredible to watch, you know, like these public utility commission hearings where, you know, I mean, that's a very dry hearing where they're trying to get a permit, right, for their project. And, you know, come watching grassroots activists basically show up and, you know, flood the meeting with comments um, and really become engaged in the process while, while it was happening. And I think that that was really powerful to see people from the streets also taking it into the actual, you know, process that's in place and challenging that process. I think Keystone XL2 was a really great moment for seeing that the fight is not just fought by big greens, like the big traditional green environmental organizations. It's really fought by a lot of people on the ground, just little organizations and little groups of people that really uh, feel strongly and are out there on the front lines fighting. And um, I think I saw big greens kind of realize that they really need to partner with the, with these folks. And so 
I think KeysonXL is really empowering in a lot of ways for people that really are just <laughs> on shoestring budgets, you know, out there standing with their sides and hoping that they can stop these projects from going through their homelands or going through their, you know, their source of drinking water and not just that not just being like this kind of overarching big concept, you know, I mean, for, for those folks, it's not a big or overarching concept. It's not some remote idea. It really is happening in their backyard. Hopefully for, for folks coming in, they realize that everyone has a voice and you don't need to have some giant powerhouse behind you to really make a difference. You can make a difference just by joining forces on the ground. In talking about these coalitions, one uh, group that that's really come out uh, and sort of surprising force for, um, for climate in the last several years increasingly um, has been um, labor unions, but, but yet um, there's, there's a lot of division between um, different unions in terms of how they uh, relate to climate issues, whether they're uh, for certain campaigns or against them. And it just crops up and it's, a, of course, a, a narrative the media really likes to talk about jobs versus the environment. So on the one hand, that really comes from the right wing and often it's, it's kind of conservative politicians uh, drumming that home. But on the other, there is this sort of real question of how do you provide livelihoods for people who have been employed in these sectors uh, and communities that have depended on this industry for generations, which, of course, often happen to be those communities that are worst hit and, and worst impacted by um, some of the toxic uh, offshoots of these of these industries. What does building up solutions um, entail, both as a political task and also as sort of a, a policy question of, of what do these solutions really look like? There are people that are losing their jobs. There are, you know, the fossil fuel industry is hurting right now and it's laying off a lot of people. And the additions of, you know, front lines, activists and, you know, environmental protectors has ultimately put even more pressure on them, Right. And so a lot of times people feel very apprehensive of the fact that they're, that we're saying, you know, protect the environment, but we're not also saying, well, what about jobs, right? Like that's what the Republican pushing pushback point is always, what about, what about jobs? And so I think what I've seen, and, you know, this is something that actually our organization, Honor the Earth, is really focused on um, in this coming year and has been working on over the past years, um, is this concept of just transition, which right now we're actually working on in the White Earth Reservation, a little little community in northern Minnesota, teaching uh, tribal members how to, doing, doing trainings on how to construct and install solar panels, creating this, you know, energy independence, but also teaching a new skill that's, you know, a, a, a construction skill, you know, a blue collar worker type of working population that would be part of that. But at the same time, it's just a, it's just a different, it's a different energy, right? It's a different energy source. And it's one that we're, we're advocating for. We're not just saying stop using fossil fuels. We're saying stop using fossil fuels and transition to this, you know, transition to green energy, start working on wind, start working on solar, start looking at, I just saw, you know, Elon Musk talking about his electric, his new Tesla that's going to be like $30,000 and, mm. you know, how much pushback he's gotten from the fossil fuel industry, which is lobbying Congress really hard to, you know, not provide subsidies for those vehicles, not provide any type of, you know, incentives to, to purchase a cheap, you know, I mean, I mean, essentially a, a, an affordable um, electronic car. I mean, they, they are electric car. They don't want that to happen. Right. Um, and that's where we, the people, I think really have to stand up and say, we want fossil fuel money out of our politics. We want it out of our policies. We want it out of the people that are regulating these industries. Um, it creates a system that, you know, unfairly keeps us in the dark ages. 
we are not saying, you know, we want to go back to, you know, candlelight and horse rides. We don't, that's not, that's not the, that's not the message here. The message is we have the technology to move into the next era of, you know, of, of this, um, tech, we have the, we have the technology moving the next era of energy and we should be doing it and we're not. Um, I think that we are at some level, we've seen renewables really, really dramatically increase. And I think that there's way, I think it's going to, I think the the more money that's put into it, the more it's going to explode and the, the greater the pressure that a lot of these fossil fuel industries are going to feel to transition and start looking at, you know, how do we invest in this instead? Um, we've seen the federal government provide a very large boost for those industries for, um, you know, providing grant money and um, different opportunities that, that fund these projects, that fund solar, that fund wind, that, you know, help small communities become energy independent. And we've seen a communities around the world also take the, take up these things, right? I just saw, uh, I think it was Denmark that actually did its entire power, like the entire country's worth of power in one day because it was a really windy day or something like that. And I mean, it's it's incredible to watch, you know, and really see. And I think that that's where we are moving. And I think that's where we continue to, we should continue to push and demand these changes be made. And also, you know, sell that message of we're not saying just end fossil fuels and end your jobs. We're saying let's provide new jobs um, with with the existing framework we already have. I mean, we have the technology there. We just need to invest in it and make it widely available. Well, that just about wraps up our first episode of Hot and Bothered. Next episode, to give you a preview for what's coming, we'll have Naomi Klein on talking about the Leap Manifesto up in Canada. Some other issues we're keeping our eye on for future shows include really bad weather. How bad is it? And to be more specific, what's the deal with tipping points? We'll also be looking at labor, just transition issues, at the links between cities, housing, and climate And for the record, we are going to be doing something soon on low-carbon leisure. This is going to happen. We all love low-carbon leisure. And I'd be remiss if we got through this whole show without mentioning the man who might be responsible for more low-carbon leisure than anyone in the Western Hemisphere, Prince. So just a little commemoration here on Hot and Bothered for Prince. Thank you, Kate. And don't forget to tweet at us, hashtag hotbotheredclimate. Till next time, we're hot and bothered.